0: two and two and one. Oh shucks i can't dance hello and welcome to stories from the open gov a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like my name is richard pietro and i am joined by ryan androsov he is the director of the digital leadership program at the institute on governance and the co-founder of the Canadian Digital Service. And the reason he's here today is that he's going to give us a cursory look at how COVID-19 has affected the government and how it will change it. Hello, Ryan, and thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Richard. Great to be with you.
0: So my first question is quite simply, while you yourself are not currently a public servant, you do work closely with many of them. So I'm wondering, can you tell us in sort of your experience lately, what was the initial reaction from public servants when the pandemic was declared and when lockdowns were announced?
1: Yeah, thanks, Richard. It's, um, it's obviously been, you know, a challenging few weeks for everybody. Uh, and And public servants are are not exempted from that you know in in conversations i 've been having with people in government uh, since the lockdown started and since the the covid nineteen crisis really started hitting home I think for a lot of people about three weeks ago there 's been a variety of reactions and responses to it. I think largely speaking you 've got kind of two different groups of public servants in terms of how they're being directly impacted in their work on this. Um, There is a group of public servants who are really on the front lines of responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, And certainly, you know, at the provincial level, you've got the healthcare workers who are really on the front lines, Um, but provincial, federal, municipal governments, you have people who are in those kind of core continuity of government roles, certainly people working in public health positions but also i think sometimes forgotten people working on things like employment insurance and old age security and you know all the services and benefits that people always rely on they're relying upon that much more now uh, given not just the health impacts but the huge economic shocks that come along with this pandemic Um, And then in addition, governments at all levels have been scrambling to release new policies, new programs, new services to help citizens. So you certainly have a group of public servants who are, you know, essentially working 24-7, engaged on managing the response and the fallout from the pandemic. Um, I think then you've got another group of public servants whose day-to-day jobs aren't yet pulling them in as much to that day-to-day response, but they have, of course, become incredibly disrupted in their work. Um, You know, number one, a lot of the initiatives and programs they may have been working on have been pushed to the back burner Um, you know, it's remarkable we're coming up on the the fiscal year end, um, you know, which is normally a very busy time for almost everybody in government as they're wrapping up kind of fiscal year end commitments. And I've heard a lot of those have been kind of Put to, put to the side as departmental resources are focusing on the pandemic response. Um, and of course, and, and I think one of the things we'll talk about today is you know, everybody, whether they are those essential services or, or people working directly on the pandemic response or those who are in kind of more tertiary roles right now, um, are having to adjust to a world of working remote and re- working distributedly and working in a in a fully digital type of environment. Um, and while there's certainly 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 have been parts of government that have been making that move to working in a more remote and distributed way. It's been uneven. Not everybody has had the tools to be able to do that effectively. And I mean, when I say tools, I mean both technology tools and also the behaviors and practices to do it. Uh, So it's really interesting to see what that, you know, people are very quickly having to learn how to work in a very different way. Uh, And I think the last few weeks, you know, everybody has been adjusting to that new reality as a result of that. So you mentioned a moment ago about the continuity
0: of government, and there's been a, <laughs> it's been highly documented that there's been some VPN problems that the network, especially at the federal level, uh, has not been ready for the influx of users. So, But aside from those VPN difficulties, what has been some of the biggest problems for the continuation of government during the last month?
1: Yeah and you're right Richard I think there's certainly been you know some IT infrastructure issues that have been laid bare by the results of the pandemic and the response to it Um, and so that has been I think number one hopefully a wake-up call um, for a number of departments and agencies um, that you know not just in kind of crisis times but I think more broadly this need to to upgrade our digital infrastructure to be able to engage with people. Um, you know, I, I think from a from a government operations side too, it's always important to, to think about um, the way that government works in, in two very, you know, kind of different silos when it comes to, certainly the information technology, but into operations. And, you know, there is a lot of what government does, which is relatively unsecured types of information um, and uh, doesn't require necessarily specialized network, specialized equipment to be able to interact with each other, but you certainly have parts of government and certainly the more sensitive parts When you start getting into uh, issues around crisis management that require secure networks, require secure devices, Um, and I think there's been some more challenges around some of that in terms of being able to do it, you know, where people aren't physically with each other. Um, So I think building in those those kind of practices around that have been a challenge. Now, all that being said, I mean, government I think does you know do a relatively good job of being able to have contingencies in place. I certainly haven't heard of of examples yet where government hasn't been able to kind of carry out its its core functions. Um, certainly, there's been delays on things. There's obviously unprecedented volumes in in certain areas when it comes to programs people are trying to access, um, and in terms of some of the response that people are trying to trying to be able to um, to, to give to some of these issues. But I, I think in Canada, at least, you know, I, I think people have been largely quite happy with with you know the the type of response that they've seen the challenge i think a part of it is going to be how do you sustain this um because you know one of the unique things about dealing with a a pandemic situation like this you know in terms of crisis management is this isn't kind of a you know, single traumatic event, which then you have to get into, you know, the cleanup and response to, this is going to be an ongoing challenge for government over the course of certainly weeks, very likely months, and, you know, very likely into next year as well. Um, and so, you know, even just from a human perspective, that can become very draining for people. You know, it's it's easy to work on a crisis for the first few weeks when you're still running on adrenaline, but it, it is kind of the long-term Um, you know, approach and the long-term kind of work of this that can become very draining for people. And so I I suspect, um, you know, and I know for a fact in, in many places, people are starting to also put some attention to that, which is on the human side, how do we help sustain this in what might be multiple waves of a pandemic? Um, you know, and recognizing that just as as human beings, we can't, you know, be working at 100%, you know, 100% of the time. <clears throat> and how do we give people that that ability to swap in and out and, and have the supports they need to be effective in the long term?
0: Actually, that's a really interesting point. I'd like to, and I would like to explore that a little bit. Because there's obviously a lot of talk about how COVID-19 has sort of kind of forced the government to change the way it works while for so many years when it came to that it was like they had the mentality of if it's not broken then don't fix it but now they seem to to be adapting to those changes but i'm curious to know are those changes just going to be limited during this period of of the pandemic and then once it's over, it'll just go right back to baseline?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's something that I've been talking with a lot of people about in the past few weeks. Um, I guess three weeks ago now, I was down in Toronto um, for the Code for Canada Summit, uh, which brings together a lot of, of both you know, civic technology enthusiasts in government and people from the private not-for-profit sector. And this was just as... In Canada, the the COVID-19 situation was really starting to to, to heat up and and one of the biggest topics of conversation there from people who were starting to live this reality of recognizing this might be the last in-person event that many of them are going to be going to for a long time and that they were going to have to shift their teams to working in very different ways is this exact question of, is this going to be there for the long term? Um, or is this something where we're going to see ourselves going back to our our usual ways of working? My my hunch is this, Richard. I I think that while there will at some point be a pushback towards some normalcy, I think there are going to be long standing changes that come about as a result of the pandemic, um, and I think this is this is true society wide. Uh, but I think it's gonna also be true in terms of how government works um from its oper from an operational standpoint. And you know, crises like this can often have a very strong kind of catalytic effect on on making change happen or solidifying change that has been brewing in the system for a while. Um and, and in many ways, you know, this might end up being that that kind of moment where a number of factors come together that actually deepen and instill some of the trends that were happening in government already. You know, we've talked a little bit about the move towards remote work and distributed teams. This is something that certainly within, you know, what what I'll kind of call the more progressive parts of government that have been looking at how they can modernize have been underway for years, right? There's been, you know, this push to being able to work in more decentralized, more collaborative types of teams. Um, You know, you've seen examples of organizations playing with different types of structures to work more fluidly. Uh, The the free agents program or the talent cloud initiative with the federal government are good examples of that. Um, You've been seeing a move toward different kind of physical office layouts um, with the move to to kind of the the Workplace 2.0 or Workplace 3.0 initiatives in the federal government. Uh, You've also been seeing, though, that extended to the notion of having, um, you know, Government of Canada telework working spaces where you would actually have, you know, physical locations where people could come together and work regardless of where their department was. And at the same time, a lot of emphasis happening and certainly in some departments on teleworking and giving people, you know, tablets and mobile equipment and Wi-Fi and the kind of tools they need to be able to work in a much more distributed way. Now, those those efforts have been largely very piecemeal, and it, you certainly see some departments or some parts of departments that have embraced it and have made that move in, in a real wholesale way, others who haven't, right? And, and part of that has to do with you know, the culture of the department, part of it has to do with the comfort level of individual managers or executives who may not be comfortable or familiar with managing a distributed team Um, and suddenly everybody in the blink of an eye has been forced to become you know the manager of a remote team or participating in a remote team and there is really interesting you know learnings about it because it's not just as simple as giving people you know ability to do a video conference and a laptop and a VPN connection from home. There's actually a very different style of working behind that. Um, you know, my my former team in the government of Canada, the Canadian Digital Service. The, I mean, they've actually been real pioneers around this uh, because they have taken a you know a distributed or remote working kind of first approach. You know, almost baked into the DNA of the organization. Um, and they actually have some great blog posts about their their kind of journey on building a remote and distributed team. And and you know, one of the learning from that was that if you're going to be effective at having a distributed type of workforce, it requires you to treat everybody as if they're a distributed worker or they're a remote worker and that means that you know you can't have that approach to it that there's the people at headquarters who are sitting in the boardroom in person and then it's kind of a, a second thought you add on the people who are joining you by video or teleconference That you've got to treat everybody regardless of physical location or distance as being equal as part of the conversation now that's really tough It's an easy thing to say but it's tough to do in reality when you've got all of those kind of informal social norms as to how we work just baked into our DNA. So what has been fascinating as I've been talking to colleagues of mine, you know, in the public service over the last few weeks is we suddenly came upon, upon this crisis moment where everybody was just forced to do this, right? There, there is no headquarters versus remote staff. Everybody is remote, everybody is distributed. And there's obviously growing pains around that, but everybody has been suddenly cast into this world of working in a much more distributed type of way. And, and I, I think there's gonna be growing pains as they go through it, both on the technology side, but also on, on the practices and the approaches and the methods to be effective in that kind of way. But there are clearly benefits to it, right? And there is reasons why, you know, we see a lot of companies and organizations around the world trying to give that flexibility to employees to work in different types of ways. Um, And I suspect that, you know, after government has gone through many months of, of doing this, there may be, for a whole variety of reasons, a reluctance to go back to having everything exactly the way it was. Um, I mean, certainly we're gonna have people come back to physical offices to some degree, but I think there's gonna be much more openness to have that more distributed workforce. I think, to be frank, is gonna probably be, you know, in the in the aftermath of all of this, particularly when governments are gonna have to start dealing with very serious deficits um, and the financial implications of this crisis, um, a consideration around, do we need the kind of real estate footprint that we have? Um, mm. Once we've gotten used to being in a world where we actually are used to having employees working in a much more um, distributed kind of ways. Um, and, I, and I would just add the, the other piece of this, which I've been thinking about is I think there's a really interesting... Equity argument around having particularly at the federal government level, having government work in more distributed ways as kind of um, as kind of the, the the baseline assumption for how it works. I mean, I grew up in Saskatchewan. I'm a Western Canadian. Um, and there you know we, we pre-crisis. we were talking a lot you know after the last federal election about Western alienation, about some of the challenges around you know cohesion within the country and to be frank, you know, one of the challenges around that is particularly if you want to work in kind of senior, you know, policy or decision making roles with a few exceptions, you know, you largely have to physically be in Ottawa for that to happen, right? And, and there really is a sense of a divide between kind of headquarters and, you know, and regional offices. And I actually think one of the positive things of moving to having government working in a more remote <clears throat> and distributed way is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in, you know, Ottawa or Gatineau or if you're in de Vierge or Saskatoon or Victoria, is everybody's on equal footing now. Um, And it may open the door, you know, longer term, if this becomes a more permanent shift for actually more Canadians from different parts of the country to be part of the public service without having to physically relocate themselves and uproot their lives to do that.
0: I want to shift the conversation a little bit away from sort of where uh, public servants work and focus a little bit on culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, what they're working on and and how they're actually accomplishing their job not just where they're doing it and I want to introduce this part of the conversation uh, by talking about an interview I did with Jesse Hirsch a couple of weeks ago he's a futurist and technology consultant and I asked him uh, questions about an article he wrote where he plainly said that right now our actions or our inactions could put democracy on the line that almost at a point of we could go sort of the Hunger Games route you know the Elysium route or or go sort of the Star Trek the next generation route uh, based on the decisions we make right now he uh, said this was bigger than the Berlin Wall or just as big as the Berlin Wall falling and the end of the Cold War it said this is bigger than 9-11 what is your reaction to that perspective
1: well I think there's truth behind that. Um, You know, I'd like to hope that it's not going to be that as cataclysmic as Jesse's, you know, suggesting in terms of the potential impact, but he's absolutely right that, you know, I think whenever you have these large societal disruptions like this, um, there are always different paths that society can take in its response to it um, and, and, and kind of where it goes from it. And, you know, and as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, I mean, there's a couple of unique aspects to, to the COVID, you know, 19 pandemic that, that make it different from some of these past crises, you know, or inflection points that you mentioned Uh, you know, one of them is, is just the, um, the very kind of, uh, if I can call it non-political nature of the virus you know I I think back in contrast to to 9-11 and and the response to that and I think some of the big you know policy shifts and debates that happened as a result of it particularly when it came to security when it, when people were looking at travel um, uh, restrictions and and how they responded to it there was obviously a very you know big p and small p political element to it and and you had you know some of um some of the worst of humanity that came out in terms of you know stigmatizing entire groups of people around that um you know and a and b it was you know there was a certain subset of countries or individuals that were you know more heightenedly impacted by by the fallout that came out of 9-11. You know it was a global event but but there certainly were some places in the world where you felt it much more than others. Um, What's happening now is I mean truly global in scope um, and it's and it's truly kind of you know uncaring about your political ideology about your race about your religion um you know the virus impacts everybody right and and every country and everybody in the world is having to respond to it in different ways and so i think one of the the interesting pieces that's going to come out of this and and i and i think you know again going back to you know what jesse had said about this um a few weeks ago is it is going to you know lay bare when we look retrospectively on how different systems of government and how different uh, administrations dealt with this crisis what works and what doesn't um, and I think, you know, there's always the risk that we take the wrong lessons from that. But I think people are going to be looking very carefully to see which countries have done better in managing this type of crisis, both from a public health standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Um, and and there are certain implications that might come from that. And And, you know, one of those, and we're already seeing discussion around that, is does it change the balance of what people are willing to accept when it comes to surveillance and data sharing and monitoring um, because we've seen in some countries um, that you know in places like singapore and south korea um, and others that you know the the more uh, robust sharing of of personal information with government i mean has from all accounts so far had a positive effect from a, from a public health and epidemiologist standpoint of being able to track and manage cases. Um, and I think, you know, most people, I, my suspicion, I haven't seen polling in Canada on this, but my suspicion is if you talk to most people and you said, listen, if, if by giving up some of your personal information, be it your cell phone data, you know, or location information, We can help save your life, save your family's life, save your neighbor's life. In the moment, I think a lot of people are willing to to be open to that. Um, The question becomes then, what kind of limits are put on those powers? How long do those types of um, programs or exemptions or changes last for? And what are the unintended consequences of that, right? And this is exactly the type of issue that we saw post 9 11 with, you know, debates around the Patriot Act in the United States and certainly in Canada and elsewhere, the notion around extrajudicial powers, extra security and monitoring powers. Um, There is always the risk that, you know, these can be set up for a certain purpose, but then end up being used or misused for other purposes down the line. And that debate around where we strike the right balance is. Is going to be an important you know um, after-effect of this and I think is something that people are going to have to be actively engaged with for quite some time to come.
0: No I, I can't help but agree with what you've just said and that's definitely a concern of mine and I want to pivot as well a little bit here and introduce a quote from Milton Friedman because there is an answer to a lot of these concerns. But first, the quote goes as such. Milton Friedman is a former Nobel Prize winning economist, as I'm sure you know. And he once said that only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. Open government and open data are ideas that have been, at least for a, couple, for a decade, they've had some tractions, they're lying around, but it's been a very slow pickup. As morbid as it may sound, do you think that COVID-19 is an opportunity for the open government and open data movements and its practitioners?
1: So, I, I think the, the short answer is yes, but I, but I think the, the, the long answer is much more complicated than that. So, you know, that notion that when you're in times of crisis, um, you know, it's the ideas that, that are laying around that are the ones that, you know, uh, end up being taken. I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? And it's, it, you know, and I kind of think about this a little bit as like muscle memory for people who are engaged in managing these crises. It is tough in kind of the short term crisis response to suddenly find entirely new ways of doing things because people are limited in time and effort and resources. And so they're going to tend to go to methods and methodologies that they're most comfortable with. So I think there's a challenge in that, you know, initial crisis response phase, which we're clearly still in, of saying, hey, you know, we've got whether it's digital government, open government, um, you know, open data tools out there. If you've got communities and people who aren't comfortable functioning in these new ways or with these new tools or technologies, it's gonna be tough for them in the short-term crisis response to be able to suddenly kind of pick those things up and run with them. But where I so so I have I have less hope in Canada that we can do that in the crisis phase. Let me just give you a contrast though um, on this. And I was reading recently about Taiwan and how Taiwan has been responding to the COVID nineteen crisis. And what's fascinating about that response is that in Taiwan, their civic tech community has actually really played a big role in um, helping the government there manage some of the impacts of the pandemic. But that was possible because they already had a very deep civic tech community and infrastructure in the country. They had deep bonds between government policymakers makers public servants in the Taiwanese government who have access to the types of data and systems that the civic tech folks would need to be able to make effective tools for people to manage the pandemic and that those partnerships and those ingredients already existed. And so they were able to quickly capitalize and spin up on that. And From from all accounts, there have been some really interesting um, impacts from that that have come already. In Canada, we obviously have a a bit of a civic tech movement that has been started. We've got open government and open data communities have existed for a decade plus now in the country, but they haven't been as well integrated um, into the work of government itself. And I think that has been a bit more of a challenge is that in the immediate response, there hasn't been quite the same level of ability to harness these things in, in a wide scale way. But where I'm hopeful on this and where I do think there's some opportunity is going to be in the next phase of this. I think once the immediate crisis abates, there is, as there is after any crisis, a a reckoning of, you know, what went well and what didn't and where were there gaps. And, And I do think in this space around... You know, digital and open data and open government, there are clearly some pitfalls in terms of the types of responses that we potentially could have taken that we haven't because some of those those elements weren't in place. And, you know, my hope is that there, there will be able to be... Um, a degree of effort and interest that is put into that by governments. Um, you know, I think earlier you mentioned, you know, that notion of there was kind of a, that it isn't broken, don't fix it mentality. And, I mean, having worked in government for many years and, and working with policymakers for most of my career, I have sympathy. I, I You know, we're in a world of limited resources and most days unlimited problems, right? and And that's one of the toughest things about governing um, effectively is being able to sometimes make very difficult choices as to where do you allocate scarce resources. Um, But I think, you know, post-crisis, those calculations around where you allocate resources and what's important change, and those are those big inflection points in society. Um, you know, I was thinking about a um, a thread I was I was reading on Twitter a few days ago from uh, uh, Dr. Jennifer Robson uh, from Carleton University. You know, and she was making some interesting points around the fact that because we have traditionally underinvested um, in Canada in our kind of government technology infrastructure. It actually starts hampering in a real way some of our our ability to respond um, to crises, but other policy issues around this. You know, on just one example of that, when we think about. Um, You know, how government has tried to to move on the economic impact of this to actually put money in the hands of citizens to help with some of the the financial hardship that a lot of Canadians are going through right now. The fact that we don't have, you know, uh, an integrated system to be able to actually give benefits and find information out to people has made this much, much more difficult than it would have been if we had been able to invest in some of that infrastructure, um, as other countries around the world have done. Um, We have a much more kind of fractured system government, you know, in Canada, in part because of the federated system we have. Um, but this, you know, this whole notion of having kind of a, a you know, a, a single approach for citizens to access services, to to connect with government, if, if we had had that in place, it would have dramatically simplified our ability to give support and give aid to individual citizens, right? Because then the question becomes not a whole slew of implementation issues around how do you actually physically get you know, a check in people's hands because all that infrastructure in theory could have been and should have been there. It then is simply a, a policy question around how much support are we going to give to people and what's the criteria to receive it. And so I, I think, you know, some of the challenges that governments are having and being able to respond quickly on not just kind of setting their response, but actually implementing their response to the crisis it will hopefully draw a bit of a lens onto where there needs to be some greater investment and effort in the, in the years to come. I, I want to
0: explore that a little bit further. And in the time that I spent working on open government and open data, I've come to adopt this perspective. And I want you to tell me how right or how wrong I am. And, uh, and it's that, at least in Canada, I can't speak for other places around the world too, too much, but there seems to be a convention that public servants are there to execute Policies that are initiated or implemented or wanted by sort of the elected officials. And it is the job of the elected official to interact with the public, whereas the public servant is to limit that interaction as much as possible. And I'm talking about in generalities. There are some, like yourself in the past, that believe that public servants need to be much more integrated, much like that you were suggesting in Taiwan with the civic tech community, with the civic engagement community, Mm -hmm. do you feel as though that convention of, it is the politician's job to interact with the public and it is the public servant's job to execute on policy. Is that an accurate perception?
1: well it's certainly it's certainly the theory that our whole system of government um not just in this country but in many countries is based on right You know people talk about this concept as being the, the Westminster bargain, you know, and that notion that you know the minister and the elected official who kind of represents government is that public face for its department's decisions, its interactions with the public and the media, and that notion that you know public servants have a much more anonymous role, um, but their side of the bargain is they have essentially kind of a permanent appointment that goes beyond political cycles or changes in administration um, and can give that long-term advice to government. That's the traditional model, right, that goes back centuries and that we're faced upon. And, you know, Richard, as, as you and I both know, this is kind of one of the existential questions for the last, you know, decade that a lot of people in the open government movement have been struggling with, uh, and that I certainly have struggled with, is we're now in a world where individual public servants are much less anonymous than they ever were before, right, with the rise of social media. um, And and I think just the notion that we're in a world where it's much easier to interact and share ideas and connect with each other. um, You know, for years, I've been unsure that that can sustain itself um the way it has been traditionally now i don't think we have kind of collectively figured out yet what this will exactly evolve into because i you know i do think there is still an important principle around you know, democratic accountability on this. Um, And and it is a two-way street, as I I think, you know, the the trends we've seen around, you know, our social media environment and kind of the open data, open government movements have made individual public servants much more visible. And I think some of them have embraced that role to be much more publicly visible. Um, There are certain responsibilities that come along with that as well, right? And and I'm not sure that we have fully yet kind of renegotiated that notion of, of how we're going to work in, in a much more open um, and transparent type of world that is being fueled in many cases uh, by the, the use of kind of easy and, and, and simple um, technologies that help us share information um, more broadly on that. Um, but there's huge potential and possibility around this. You know, we talked about the civic tech example, where being able to tap into those types of civic engagement and civic technology communities, particularly in times of crisis, uh, can be a huge strength for societies and for governments that they have that infrastructure in place. Um, So I think that's certainly important. But one of the other things, you know, you're making me think about, Richard, which really has struck me over the last few weeks and I think has struck many other people is the very prominent role that a lot of our you know senior public health officials are playing in in the in the Mm. public being the public face of the crisis management right i mean because certainly you know we've all kind of now slipped into this kind of grim rhythm of the daily you know briefings that are happening federally provincially municipally from all kinds of levels of government you know you throw on you know the the 24 hour news channels, and it's just this an uh, endless series of press conferences. But what's been interesting is the people who have been largely, you know, leading a lot of the the really substantive public responses on this have been the you know the the chief public health officers in various jurisdictions, and certainly you know the elected officials have been there, and the prime minister is doing his daily uh, his daily media conference um, to to talk about these issues with the public. But it's actually been been the public servants who are the experts on these topics that have been largely the public face for a lot of people. And and I think certainly from some of the responses we've seen that the public has been comforted from that, right? Because, you know, it, it is not obviously a, a politician's job to be an expert on, you know, epidemiology and pandemics and, and and the intricacies of how the healthcare system can respond to something like this, or how the economy can respond to kind of unprecedented shocks like this. These are times where I think people really want deep expertise and they want people who can who can speak to this um and you know and and that's been i think certainly in canada one of the ways in which we've been quite strong in responding to this is that people are kind of seeing front and center the the public servants who are the real experts on these topics uh, being a very visible voice um, from the government in terms of how it's responding to this. And so I think it's a really interesting question as to, you know, uh, this is obviously going to go on for many months. um, And as we get a bit more used to, you know, hearing from those direct experts on different topics, does that start becoming just more of a public expectation writ large um, that they, you know, that when government Government is dealing with you know a whole variety of different issues that they don't necessarily just want to interact with kind of the political layer of government but that people actually want more access to the expertise and subject matter experts um, that are actually leading some of these files directly
0: No, that's uh it's so very true and I had not made that connection either until you mentioned it and we got to start thinking about wrapping up this episode here a little bit but I want to ask you one more question here real quick which is sort of in your ideal sort of world can you paint me a picture of what the new normal for government and public servants could be or should be in a post-COVID-19 world?
1: So my hope would be that we wind up in you know a post a post-COVID-19 world that we see government essentially supercharged a lot of the trends that that have been percolating for a while that we see government that becomes much more agile much more flexible much more interconnected um much more obviously digitally literate and 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 comfortable working in a modern digital world than it has been traditionally um you know and my hope is that those kind of shifts if they happen you know again they're being sparked by necessity because of the pandemic but that these end up becoming baked into part of the culture of government. I I think those types of, of changes in terms of how government operates and works would be incredibly positive if they are there for the long time. Um, and I think, you know, we had one of the things we haven't talked about yet today is around, you know, for example, procurement, right? I mean, this is actually one of the other kind of sticking points in how government works that have been laid bare by this crisis. There's a huge need to procure, you know, protective equipment and emergency supplies for hospitals and frontline workers very, very quickly. And a lot of our procurement systems in government are not set up to do rapid procurement and flexible and open procurement. And I think there's hopefully going to be, you know, on on systems and processes like that, a rethinking of it. Um, And as I mentioned, then, you know, I would love to see then a few years from now, once the immediate crisis has, has abated, is a real investment to saying, how do we build up kind of a modern digital era infrastructure for government so that it can respond much more effectively and much quicker to people, right? That we're not tripping over ourselves on implementation, but that we can actually get a much more frictionless experience for being able to provide you know programs and services delivery to citizens um, um, to businesses to to the economy as a whole because the potential is there to do it right all the building blocks that we would need to be able to build that type of a governance system are in place Uh, but we need some focused effort and resources to be able to get there And, and my hope would be that in a positive way you know we're able to to get there because of this and because of some of the public demand that may come as a result of this crisis
0: i have to thank you real quick because you have inadvertently given me a plug for a future episode of stories from the open gov because i will soon be releasing an episode with lindsay marchaso who's a uh, director with the open contracting partnership. And we're gonna be talking about that very thing of sort of determent and, and things of that nature as it relates through COVID-19. So uh, pay attention to that, it should be coming out soon. Is there anything else beyond procurement that you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about?
1: No, you know, I think, Richard, there's, I mean, there's, there's, everybody is still, I think, very much in this, this phase of kind of coming to grips with what this is going to mean. It's been, um, you know, it's been a remarkable journey, I think, for, for everyone as we go through this. And, And I think it's tough sometimes to get our head around the fact that this is, this is still the early days of this, you know. Um, I mean, the beginning of March feels like it was months ago at this point, Um, and and so much has happened um, since then. And, you know, I I hope for anybody listening to this, you know, regardless of how they're involved, whether they're, you know, working on the front lines, whether they're in government dealing with the response to this, you know, whether they are just as an individual citizen trying to do their best on, you know, physical distancing and and supporting everybody, um, you know, just to recognize that it's okay that we don't have all the answers right now because i I think this really is an unprecedented situation um and you know people are are putting their best efforts into sorting through this and there's going to be you know fits and starts on it Um, but there are huge impacts that are going to be felt for years to come from this and and so i think you know everyone will have to be part of that solution and and essentially helping to design what what a post pandemic you know world and a post pandemic government um, is going to look like on this and uh, you know we've talked about a whole number of topics today on, on some of the potential impacts that might come out of this um, you know one of the things we haven't even touched about uh, upon yet which I think is also an important element of this is what are citizen expectations going to be and how does that shape government going mm. forward you know and and, and to, to name just one of them. Um, you know, when it comes to government services, but I think this applies to, you know, the private sector and the non for profit sector and academia as well. Are people going to be comfortable going back to a world of in-person services? Right. You know. I, I mean, I've been talking with colleagues about this. You know, are the world or is the world of large international conferences gone for good? Like, are people going to be willing to get on airplanes and go to international conferences in the future, or are those viewed as just too risky of an activity to to, to kind of contemplate? Are people going to want to go in? You know, to a physical location to receive services? or does this really accelerate the move to digital even beyond the initial crisis because people are just unwilling to kind of take those risks in the same way and and so i think we've got to be really conscious of watching once kind of the immediate emotional reaction to the pandemic subsides are some of these changes to to business models which affect not just the private sector but the public sector as well are those going to become permanent features of the landscape because if they are that has some pretty deep implications for, you know, for how government operates and the kind of skills that it needs. Um, you know, and just lastly, I'll say, certainly in my world, with the work that I do with the Institute on Governance, you know, a lot of my work now is around training and doing executive skill development. Um, you know, we run a digital leadership course and a variety of, of, of digital training programs to help public service executives build up their digital literacy so they can be more effective leaders in, in the digital world that we live in. So on the one hand, I suspect that, you know, there's going to be a lot, of of increasing interest in this uh, given some of the long-term impacts of the pandemic. But the other side is, you know, we're having to adapt as much as anybody else's right. And looking at how do you, how do you do leadership training in a, in a virtualized world, right? Where, you know, on the one hand, people benefit a lot from in-person networking and interaction um, and have a lot of expectations around what that looks like. And, and so, you know, shifting delivery models to being purely virtual or purely online it's it's much more complicated than simply saying okay we're going to do everything by webex now or by video conference there's a much deeper way of us as humans how we absorb information how we connect with each other um, that you know there's a lot of things just implicitly that we don't even think about because we're so used to what in-person interaction looks like that Us being able to effectively replicate some of that in in a much more digital world is going to require us to be pretty imaginative, I think, and creative if this ends up becoming, you know, a, a long term change in terms of what the norm is for how people interact.
0: As we're wrapping this up here, you mentioned a little bit some of the work you're doing at the Institute on Governance. Is there anything else that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, so you know, as I mentioned, um, a lot of my work these days um, with the Institute on Governance um, has been around uh, developing digital skills for for leaders in government, um, and in particularly, you know, for executives who are increasingly, and not just those who are in kind of IT roles, but rip large in government. You know, one of one of the things I talk about often is that as we increasingly are in a digital world. You know every policy issue is a digital issue right and and the implication of that is that we need leaders in all parts of the organization who are digitally literate um and and understand how to work in that way so we've been we've been doing a lot of work over the last year and a half um, with the institute on governance to do leadership training we recently ran a digital ethics workshop um, to particularly drill into issues around you know the use of algorithms and big data and artificial intelligence which again post COVID-19, I think there's going to be a lot more discussion around some of these things, um, particularly as we look at how we use data in different types of ways um, to deal with crisis management. And so there's, there's a whole host of interesting issues there. Um, I'm doing some consulting work with some different uh, government agencies and departments on helping them think through digital strategy. Um, You know, and again, it's, it's remarkable how some of the assumptions that were in place a few weeks ago, you know, suddenly are no longer there. And I I think a lot of organizations, once we get through this initial crisis period are going to be thinking really, really kind of carefully around how do they, how do they make this jump? And and in particular, you know, as we talked about a lot today, with suddenly government having to work in, in much more kind of remote digital ways than it had to before, this becomes no longer a luxury. Um, and so I suspect there's going to be, you know, in the months to come, um, a lot of effort going into this from organizations across all levels of government, kind of realizing that, you know, part of kind of the response to the crisis um, and the aftermath of it is going to be how do we build up those capacities so that we have that agility um, that it's going to be needed in the future, and and I think frankly demanded a government in the future., you
0: know, this has been a, an in- incredibly insightful interview. Brian, thank you so much for giving some of your time and sharing your thoughts. And I also want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better. Or if there are any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.